Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Vulnerable people in hospitals across the province have been making sacrifices, but who else could? We'll talk about that on the program today. An organized campaign of hate is trying to silence women in journalism, and they're sounding the alarm to find a way to stop these online attacks. And Thomas Hughes, postdoctoral fellow at the Canadian Defense and Security Network, will join us to discuss the latest from the Ukraine-Russian war. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. With the very controversial piece of legislation that uh, the uh, government introduced just a little while ago, uh, and sadly, Ontarians will not have a chance to weigh in on this legislation that will allow hospital patients awaiting long-term care to be transferred to a home without their consent. Uh, lawmakers in the province have passed a motion to skip public hearings. Uh, Premier Doug Ford says that patients who are discharged from hospital should be in long-term care. You could ask anyone in Ontario, would they want their elderly loved one sitting in a hospital, in a bed, as noise Order. are going around 24-7, not being able to get out and take a walk, when you can give them a home. Not a bed, but a home. And a home would be a long-term care home. Uh, well, that's uh, his characterization of it. There are some who would disagree with that, I suppose. And a very timely article uh, talks about this, too. Uh, Matt Gurney is our next guest. Matt, of course, is a columnist for the National Post and uh, TVO. And uh, the, the piece that uh, we're going to talk about today is on the uh, TVO webpage, uh, tvo.org. Uh, vulnerable people in hospitals are making sacrifices, but who else could? Uh, Matt Gurney, welcome back to the show. Good to have you with us today. Hey, Bill. Good morning. This is a, a very timely because the government's moving ahead, as we just said, with this legislation. It's a bing, bang, boom. It's done. It's law. Uh, and uh, we're getting dribs and drabs about what this bill actually includes here. Uh, are, are, are the people, the elderly, the frail and elderly, the, the victims in this, Matt? Um, yeah. I mean, the short answer is, is yes. Um, you know, you could lump into that, like their, their families and their loved ones. But no, I mean, there is no doubt that the rush to get patients out of the hospitals into long-term care homes will in at least some instances be a huge hindrance and inconvenience for those families. And to be clear, when we're talking about an inconvenience for people who are already very vulnerable and their families who are already very stressed out here, we don't mean trivial inconveniences here. Uh, availability of family supports has been proven repeatedly to be a direct contributor to the quality of care and level of healthy outcomes people in long-term care homes. If you're separated from your family and you don't have constant support of caregivers, just the stats tell us you will not do as well in a long-term care home. The characterization the premier just had there, but you know, you're almost—he seemed to be almost intimating that if if these people are going to stay in hospital beds, they're going to be you know tied to the bed. They're not going to be able to get out. I mean, there's a, a a definite effort on behalf of the government here to make this sound like this is the best thing possible for these frail and elderly people, moving them as you say, twenty, thirty, maybe somewhere forty, fifty kilometers away from their loved ones. Uh, into a long-term care facility. And uh, what I guess a lot of people are forgetting, and you mentioned this in the piece, is uh, long-term care facilities have their own problems that have not really been addressed to the extent that they should be. Yeah, the, the Premier was putting the, the, the kindest possible spin on what life in a long-term care home is. You know what, Bill? Honestly, some long-term care homes in this province are wonderful. Some yeah. of them are lovely places where uh, excellent, well-trained, well-funded staff take loving, doting care of their charges. The flip side of that is that some long-term care homes in this province are hellholes. 
And I think the pandemic forced us to look at that. It's something that people who had already been uh, studying the system would have known here. Not only do we need to expand the size of the long-term care system, and I don't think there's anyone who denies that we do. It's an urgent priority, at least on paper. We need to overhaul and retrofit a significant part of it. So a big challenge we're going to have in the next few years is a lot of the money we're going to spend on long-term care facilities won't actually be expanding the capacity of the system. It will be renovating and retrofitting parts of the system. Uh, I've spent quite a bit of time in long-term care homes over the years. And like I said, some of them are wonderful. Some of them are warehouses for the dying. And there's no nice way to say that. When COVID came along, I don't think people would have been shocked if they had good knowledge of the system when they saw which of those houses became overwhelmed and in some cases needed military assistance. And, and again, that's something that, that we need to take into consideration about the facilities themselves. They have staffing problems, uh, just as hospitals do. Uh, some are overcrowded, as you mentioned. I'm sure they'll find room for these people. But I interesting note I had from a listener the other day when we were talking about some of the pieces that are in this legislation, Matt. And uh, you, you talked about warehousing people in long-term care facilities, and, and she hinted that this whole process that the government is undertaking right now is almost dehumanizing uh, the, the frail and elderly. You know, they're taking up a bed. Uh, and, you know, we'll move them to wherever, uh, even if it's inconvenient. Uh, we found out today some of the legislation, uh, pieces of the legislation, uh, that the, the hospital will be able to share uh, confidential medical information with the long-term care facility that they're shipping this person out to uh, without their consent. Of course, they can ship them without their consent, too. So it, it, I, that, that idea and that characterization of dehumanizing actually sounds kind of like what these guys are doing right now. I don't think that's an unfair characterization, Bill. The only thing I would say to this is sort of the flip side of the column we're working off of here. We're doing it for a reason. And I'm not yeah. saying that what we're doing is wonderful or nice or that it, that it's not a sacrifice being demanded and compelled of our, some of our most vulnerable people. But we're doing it because we need those hospital beds. And what what we're seeing here is a very brutal... <sighs> ugly. There's no other way to put it. A really ugly manifestation of a problem we've had in this province for many, many years, and we didn't do anything about. So even before the pandemic, I was writing about the so-called ALC crisis, and ALC means alternate level of care. Mm -hmm. What that means is that someone comes into a hospital for medical treatment. They've been injured. They've been ill. They need health care in a hospital. And then they're done. Like the doctors and the nurses have taken care of them. They're stable. And it's time to get them out of the hospital. And there's nowhere for them to go. Some patients, Bill, you know, I've had this experience. I walk into the emergency room normally because I've done something stupid. They patch me up and, you know, I, I walk out under my own power and I go home. That's the ideal situation. Other people can't do that. They need to be discharged into some other this is the ALC term, another alternative level of care. Maybe they can go home with home care support. Maybe they need mental health support in the community. Maybe they need to go to a rehab hospital for a bit for some physio to get their strength back. Maybe they're never going to be able to live independently again, and they need long-term care. There are thousands of those patients in our hospitals today. There, I mean, the estimates are somewhere around five or 6,000 of them. We have a hospital system that's teetering on the brink of a catastrophic collapse, and we have five to 6,000 people in hospital beds who shouldn't be there 
but there's nowhere else for them to be. So for decades, we have spent all the money in the healthcare system on the hospitals, and we have not built up all the supportive services we needed around them. This was a predictable disaster waiting to happen. There were any number of reports warning that it could happen. I and others were writing about it even before the pandemic. This is now the crisis phase. And I I don't like what we're talking about doing in terms of the long-term care system. I also don't like the idea of someone showing up at an emergency room because they've been badly injured in an accident and the emergency room is closed. That therein lies the problem, and and as you point out in the piece uh, that's on the, the TVO webpage, uh, we're not finished with COVID yet, which is still going to impact hospitals. Uh, uh, you know, the pandemic is not over, and as a matter of fact, the experts are telling us there's probably going to be another bump, hopefully not another wave, but we don't know how bad it's going to be uh, starting in the fall. And what kind of an impact is that going to have on the hospital system? I don't know, but whatever it is, it's going to be layered on top of, we expect, the return of seasonal influenza as well. Yeah. So one of the, the things that I don't know if the, the broader public has understood this bill is that we've had weeks and weeks and weeks of reports of hospital closures. You know, it started in the rural outlying areas, and then next thing you know, a couple of weeks later, Toronto's Hospital Road, the highest concentration of medical facilities in the country, in the country's largest city, they were shutting down emergency rooms because of staffing shortages here. July and August, on a seasonal basis, are low utilization periods for the hospitals. Like Our hospitals are never not busy, but you don't expect them to be that busy in July and August. If they're already groaning under the strain, I, the people I know in the system I'm talking to, they are very worried about what's coming in the fall. In some ways, probably the most worried they've been since the first or maybe the third wave in Ontario. When the flu comes back, our hospitals could well be in big trouble. And because you asked the question somewhat rhetorically, I suppose, uh, is this going to be a short-term or a long-term solution? Uh, when you look at a forecast such as you've just described, I, I can't see how it's going to be short-term. I mean, this this is not going to make the problem go away. It might be kicking it down the road a little bit, but we can't solve this in a week and a half. Moving the the thousands, I, I think the estimate's somewhere around 2,000, maybe a bit below that. Apparently, there's a, that's the number of people in our hospitals now who are eligible for transfer, willing or otherwise, to a long-term care home. If we move 2,000 people out of our hospital system, I mean, hey, that's 2,000 people, right? I mean, that does free up 2,000 beds. That helps kind of get people who are currently stuck in emergency rooms. Maybe that gets them up to an actual a treatment ward but the concern i have and bill i think my concern on this one mirrors yours what we're talking about here are not actual long-term strategies what we're talking about are short-term coping mechanisms mm -hmm. we don't have any mystery here like we all know what actually needs to happen like this is there are problems in life bill where you have no idea what you need to do this isn't one of them we know what we need to do we need yep. a much larger hospital system and a way bigger system of uh services around them like long-term care rehab etc the problem is we're going to have to spend a huge amount of money on that and we can probably find the money. I mean, your taxes, ladies and gentlemen, are going up. I don't know how else to break this news to you, but you're going to be paying more in taxes in the years to come as we try to get caught up here. Yep. Even if we just sort of abracadabra the money into existence tomorrow, we may, we wave the magic wand, it's going to be anywhere from three to ten years 
until spending that money actually produces any outcome here. You can train new nurses in two, three years. You can't just magic wand doctors into existence. And this is a province where we're not good at building things. Where are we going to build the facilities to hold new hospitals and long-term care homes? We can do all these things. It will take years. Well, and that's only the bricks and mortar aspect of it, which is monumental in and of itself. But this government seems to have had a, a propensity for turning their back on the staffing issue here, too, uh, at both long-term care facilities and in hospitals, Matt. I mean, you know, it's, it's one thing to say we're going to train more nurses, uh, but what about the ones that are walking out the back door that just say, I can't do this anymore? Uh, you know, do we, is this a net zero gain here where we're, we're going to be in the same boat at two, three years from now? We don't know this yet. No, net zero is way, way too optimistic, my friend. So we yeah, graduated so. about we graduated about ten thousand nurses during the pandemic. We probably during that time had our actual battle strength of available nurses go down by about ten thousand. So these are all just aggregate numbers. I've talked to the Ontario Nursing Association. They track by uh, active nursing licenses, which is sort of a blunt instrument because people will sometimes leave the profession. Well, but maybe they'll keep paying their dues because they might come back later. So they only have kind of raw estimates to work with. But we know we graduated almost 10,000 new nurses during the pandemic. And in terms of their census of working nurses, there's 20,000 fewer working than there had been before. So it, like this is this is a disaster, right? Like the number of nurses taking early retirement or just quitting has dramatically outstripped the number we're able to graduate so we're going to try and bring in some from abroad we're talking about ways of accelerating treatment we're talking about ways to expand the capacity of the colleges here these are all smart things these are all good things we should be doing all these things i got nothing against any of this but again we're looking at a, a return here starting a few years from now and then extending out for the, for the rest of the next decade we have to all collectively get through this time together. I, I, this will sound trite and flippant, and I don't mean it way. I mean this completely sincerely. God help anyone in this province with a chronic health condition. Exactly. And God help us all if we end up with another pandemic such as we've just gone through over the last two and a half years. And and, yep. and, put, and again, as we mentioned, we're not even out of this one yet. Go to the webpage, uh, tvo.org, and you can read the, uh, the article. Very insightful, as always. Matt, thanks for the time today. Stay well, my friend. We'll talk again soon. You too. Talk to you soon. See ya. Take care. Matt Gertie, of course, columnist for the National Post and for TVO. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. An epidemic of, of, of vile and, and racist comments are being made online. Uh, and uh, it seems that uh, there's women journalists, especially women of color, seem to be the target of an awful lot of this. Uh, and it's, it's something that we're all concerned about, of course. And uh, I, I want to, I, I mentioned this on my commentary earlier this morning. I referenced uh, uh, some incidents uh, from one by our global colleagues, of course, Rachel Gilmore, who's been the, uh, the target of some of this. Uh, but I want to bring uh, our next guest into this. Brett Jolly is the president of the Canadian Association of Journalists. Uh, Brett, first of all, thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thanks, Bill. Good morning. Uh, maybe you could outline to our listeners exactly what the concern is. We've seen this, uh, and and you know I don't want people to think, well, he's a journalist; he's just trying to stand up for journalists. Uh, this is this is hate mongering that's going on here, and and it's troubling actually who they're targeting. Absolutely. I mean, what we're seeing is uh, I think the word epidemic uh, that you used earlier is pretty appropriate in this context um, because I mean, as you mentioned, this is happening against journalists, but this is also happening against a whole wide range of individuals you know the rise in online hate is something that we're seeing 
uh, only get worse, you know, and whether it's uh, against politicians, you know, for example, uh, you, you would see what happened with Christian Freeland over the mm-hmm. weekend when she was in Alberta. Uh, I'm thinking about, you know, doctors um, and nurses dealing on the front lines of the pandemic with people who are uh, opposed to, you know, masking restrictions and public health safety measures, uh, or even, you know, flight attendants and people who work in on transit and frontline public services who are continually, you know, threatened and, you know, I mean, this is more of a physical situation, but you know, I think I think the principle holds the same that you know this is uh, this is this is completely unacceptable behavior, and I think the difference that we're seeing with the online piece is that you know people are acting anonymously um, and they're acting with impunity because a lot of the mechanisms that we have to try and enforce or curtail some of these you know vile threats and attacks uh, are are very much analog solutions to digital problems right now. Well, victim of our, our times, I guess, you know, is, and I, I get that, you know, and, and, you know, we, we can talk about the good, the bad, the ugly of Twitter and other social media platforms, but you're absolutely right. I mean, in the day, for instance, uh, you know, if somebody wanted to come on a show like this and, and make vile comments and, and with, you know, profanity, et cetera, obviously you, you know, they, they get edited out, bang, you hit the, the button. Uh, you can't write a letter to the editor because you have to sign it. And of course they, they'll edit it if there's any of that stuff or just won't print it. But with social media, the concern I, I'm feeling there, Brett, and I'm sure many of yeah. your members are, is there don't seem to be any rules. And if they and, and what rules they do have, they really don't enforce very well. Oh, absolutely. And that's why I think one of the key pillars to this, I mean, there are a lot of different angles to, to come at this, this problem. Um, you know, there's the, the political angle. There's the, you know, the news organizations themselves ensuring that they're providing a duty of care to their staff. Um, but there's also certainly, um, you know, the responsibility for social media platforms to step up and say, you know, this is this is unacceptable. Why are we providing, you know, the, the, the public square to allow this sort of toxic sludge and sewage to sort of spill out everywhere? Um, and I think, you know, this has been slow and I think a lot of them are interested in looking at this. But I think ultimately, you know, actions kind of speak louder than words in this case. And and I think until we actually get there, um, we're gonna we're just gonna see this continue. Um, and I'd also add that it's not just it's not just social media. I mean, we see a lot of these threats come through email, and these are encrypted email services uh, like you know MailFence and Proton Mail and all these you know services that are designed for uh, to have end to end encryption and to be very secure and anonymous. Um, and, you know, while on one hand, these are great tools for journalists, for example, to be able to communicate with sources and to tell, you know, very, very important stories um, and to provide sources with some comfort that they're able to speak, you know, an, uh, confidently and securely with journalists. We're also seeing sort of the inverse of this happen now is that, you know, these these services are also uh, empowering these these you know, these hateful actors who are spewing this rhetoric left, right, and center. Well, we saw that in the occupation of Ottawa last February, didn't we? Uh, you know, for those of us that were watching the coverage extensively, and, uh, I mean, reporters were being jostled, they were being yelled at, I mean, you know, some vile things being said about that. It was, it's really intimidation, isn't it? It is, it is, and it's absolutely, it is, and that's that's part of the effort. I think that's why this is not just a, I mean, this is a law, a legal issue, but it's also a press freedom issue because, 
you know, as you as you mentioned there in your in your intro, you know, a lot of the, the people who are experiencing this these these threats are women and, and journalists of color. Now, you know, the and and I think that's part of a deliberate effort on the part of these individuals. I don't even know what to call them at this point because they are sort of nameless, faceless uh, email accounts or 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 Twitter handles. Uh, but you know, this is part of of removing people and their perspective and lived experience from the public sphere. And, and I think that ultimately has a huge impact on the kind of democracy and the kind of civic dialogue we want to have on issues that we're experiencing today. And ultimately, you know, building the country uh, that we want to have in the future. The concern here is is that it's happening, uh, but you know, with any problem, I guess, Brett, if you're going to solve this, you have first of all have to identify uh, why it's happening and and you know what the motivation is for this. And as you mentioned, hate seems to be part of that. Uh, they don't want reporters, uh, for instance, uh, standing in front of them. They don't want that because, well, they've been told by many of their political leaders or leaders, cult leaders, whatever you want to call them, uh, mm-hmm. that the media is bad. Uh, they lie. They don't, you know, they're going to color you in the wrong direction here. They're going to tell the media, the, the, the public stuff that we don't want them to hear. They're going to sway people away from our points of view, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, and as a result, I mean, I think we have to look at some of those people. I mean, the most obvious example, I guess, uh, is, is a guy like Donald Trump, you know, who basically said the media are all liars, except the media that, you know, agree with him. Uh, and and his followers buy it into that, and and you know that's how this persecution starts, and this is how it festers. Absolutely, and I think I think a lot of people um, see Mr. Trump and and other political leaders, and and this is a legitimization effort. You know, they seek legitimacy because they say, well, that's the president of the United States, and he's saying that, or that's the leader of so and so political party, or you know, uh, in, in this country or that country, and they're saying this kind of stuff. You know, I think that that only accelerates some of these, you know, kind of, A, authoritarian tendencies that these these individuals are trying to espouse, um, but also emboldens the people who, you know, follow um, these things, these people in their commentary without question because it fits within some biases, pre-existing biases that they have um, and how they see the world, because for whatever reason, you know, they don't they don't want to be they're not as curious. Perhaps they don't want to uh, investigate the facts to the same level of scrutiny or they, you know, potentially just go down the rabbit hole of, of conspiracy theories. And that sort of fits with their overarching worldview. And I think that's that's a huge problem for our democracy. Well, and it's it's identifying an enemy, and and you know the the, the Pierre Polyev situation with uh, with Rachel Gilmore from Global News, I think was was emblematic of that. I mean, she was she was questioning him. Uh, that's her job, first of all, uh, and she's not a supposed journalist. She's a very well respected journalist, uh, but to to denigrate her her reputation like that, and then to basically call her out and say, well, he, she was trying to set a trap. Uh, if you're going to be a politician in, in any level of government, in this country or in most other countries countries, uh, you should be up for scrutiny. And, and, you know, and if you don't like it, well, don't attack the people that are trying to do their jobs and, and present the facts to the public at large. Absolutely. No argument here. I think, you know, we need to, we really need to think about, you know, what it is we're, we're voting for and, and what kind of country we want to build. Where do we want to live? Do we want to live in a, in a, in a, in an autocracy or a, a you know, or worse? Uh, or do we want to live in in a democracy where you know the idea that the, the exchange of ideas 
you know, that means that, and that's, that's, that's how things work. Unfortunately, uh, I, I think that that is ultimately lost, you know, and what we've, we've seen so many times is individuals can, can criticize the work uh, of, of journalists and others, you know, that's, that's fair game. That's not a free exchange of ideas in the marketplace. But where it goes, when it becomes so intensely personal that, you know, you're trying to be removed or censored or silenced or, or worse or threatened with, with violence or death, for goodness sake, you know, that's, that's beyond the line. That's not personal criticism and sort of thinking that, oh, you're, just because you're a journalist, you can handle this kind of stuff is, is utter bunk. And I think we need to completely reorient ourselves in that, in that thinking. And, and when you see some of these comments, and I, I've talked to a number of journalists that have been victimized by this, you don't know if they're going to follow through on the threat or not. I mean, because in some places they've done that. Uh, and, and you know, how, how serious are they? And, and, but on the other hand, I, some people are dismissive of this whole argument, and I'm sure I'm going to get emails when you and I finish our conversation this morning saying you're making a big deal out of nothing. These are just fringe people, lunatic fringe, uh, and they're isolated incidents. Uh, I, I think the, the, the pattern... Uh, that you've talked about here, and this is one of the reasons why you address this uh, with the, the the CAJ, is that this seems to be almost like an organized pattern here. This is this is like a a campaign to try to to point out and, and focus on certain journalists. Absolutely. Well, Bill, I think that's the that's the key takeaway that we're continually reinforcing for political leaders, for law enforcement. Is you can't see this as as discrete incidents, as individual cases that come up of you know, people having a bad day or, you know, taking, take, have, pulling pranks or any of those kind of things. Like, we have to be able to see the forest for the trees here and take a step back and say, you know, that there are connections. And if we miss those connections, we are unable to mitigate the threat. And I think that's what we're saying ultimately to law enforcement is there needs to be a more comprehensive approach. It can't just be Ottawa police doing one thing, Toronto police doing one thing, RCMP doing one thing. There needs to be a way, way better system, uh, an interconnected system of sharing information um, and improving processes. Because frankly, the, what what is out there right now is is just not going to solve the problem at all. And, and your point is well taken. I mean, you know, maybe a, a journalist, uh, an opinionator, whatever, may have a certain point of view that somebody doesn't like. Well, that's the, you know, you're, you're entitled not to like it. And you're entitled to disagree with them in situations like that. But to simply say, okay, we're going to target people that don't feel the same way we feel about the way the world is these days. It's, it's discriminatory, certainly all. But as you say, as soon as you restrict uh, those members of the media from, from reporting or opining on whatever the case might be, you're into a bad situation. I mean, that's what happens in Russia and China. I don't want to see it happen in Canada. No, I don't either. I don't either. And I think that the point that we really need to re reemphasize here is that, you know, this is people doing their job. You know, they're the, the sort of conspiratorial idea that, you know, journalists are on the payroll of the government. I mean, that's just ludicrous, absolutely ludicrous. And the, but the reality is that hate and harassment that we're seeing against journalists has a chilling effect on democracy. And, you know, if that's the kind of country we want to build, well, then we really need to be able, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm frankly extremely fearful of, of what the future holds. And I think, you know, we're at a really key point here where we can say, you know, we need to take action and to emphasize that this is not acceptable because this is just people doing their jobs. Uh, or we just sort of continue to sit on our hands and say, you know, oh, I'm sure things will get better. Um, 
and I'm not too confident in that latter scenario at all. Well, not at all. And uh, we've got to be diligent about this. And, and you're right, there has to be some uniformity here from law enforcement, too. I mean, you know, a threat is a threat. If somebody threatens to kill you face to face, police will more often than, than not react to that. But if they do it online, uh, I mean, I've, I've heard situations and talked to victims of this where they just said, well, you know, it's almost impossible to trace. Well, I'm sorry. You know, something has to be done about this, because as long as they can hide behind that anonymity, uh, it's going to continue. And we see how fractured our friends to the south mm-hmm. are right now. And uh, there are starting to be some cracks here, too. And I, I don't want it to get as bad as it possibly could. And this is a, one of the contributing factors. Uh, Brent, I'm, I'm glad you spoke up about this. Uh, a, a lot of people are very concerned about this. And uh, I, I think it's something that we need to continue to talk about, shine the light on this stuff. Thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Anytime, Bill. Please, please look forward to talking to you more about this. And uh, all we can do is turn up the heat and keep the pressure on. Absolutely. Take care, Brent. We'll talk again soon. That's uh, Brett Jolly, who was the uh, president of the Canadian Association of Journalists. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A number of events uh, occurring in Ukraine over the last couple of days. Uh, clearly, the military operations are starting to ramp up. And uh, all eyes are on the Kyrgyzstan region in Ukraine right now, uh, claiming a bold move on the Russians. Charles de Ledesma has some details. A surge in fighting on the southern front line and Ukrainian claims of new attacks on Russian positions is feeding speculation that a counter-offensive to try to turn the tide of war has started. The British Defence Ministry said that as of early Monday, several brigades of the Ukrainian armed forces have increased the weight of artillery fires in front-line sectors across southern Ukraine. Meanwhile, a UN nuclear watchdog team has arrived in Kiev and is further preparing a mission to safeguard the endangered Russian-occupied Zaporizhia atomic plant from a nuclear catastrophe. I'm Charles Dilatesma. Uh, to get some insight into this, please to welcome back to the program Thomas Hughes. Thomas, of course, is a postdoctoral fellow at the Canadian Defence and Security Network. Uh, Thomas, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for the time today. Not at all. Thank you for having me. It's great to I, be here. Yeah, great it, to well, have an opportunity to talk about some some real changes that have happened in this this conflict of the last couple of days. Well, let's talk about the military aspect. I do want to talk mm-hmm. about the nuclear reactor too, and maybe get yeah. an update on that. Uh, but as uh, Charles de Ledesma figured in his report here, uh, there seems to be strong indications of a counterattack by the Ukrainians. Uh, the Russian, apparently, uh, official word out of Moscow is, "Yeah, there was one, but we've already defeated it." It's old news. What, what are you hearing? So it's obviously very difficult to get a a clear picture of exactly what's happening on a sort of hour-by-hour basis. Uh, A lot of that is for good reason. Uh, We we heard uh, uh, Zelensky last night uh, essentially suggesting we're not going to give you that sort of information because operational security is is crucial here. Uh, But I think from what we can get in in sort of broad terms, there were uh, certainly three, probably four axes of uh, advance or attack from, from the Ukrainian forces around the Kherson region uh, in the south of Ukraine. Uh, It appears that, reading between the lines, it's possible that one of those didn't have the success that they had anticipated or or hoped for, Um, but it looks like there has been more success in in perhaps three of those. I think we have to be really careful uh, as well. It's one of these situations where it's very tempting to look at maps and look at the changing uh, colours of maps and and see advances as um, taking ground and then shading it in afterwards. And that's not gonna quite be the case. Um, That said, I think it's really very apparent that Ukraine has put huge pressure on Russian forces in that region. 
uh, and the, the front lines have moved back uh, towards Russia uh, and Ukraine is making progress towards Kherson. In the, the Russians' uh, presence, of course, in the southern part of Ukraine was, was done early on in the war. Mm. Uh, how entrenched are they there? It's a good question. I mean, they, they seemed to be fairly strongly entrenched there. One of the, the big challenges uh, for Ukraine, in, in my opinion, over the course of the war has been uh, to prevent Russia from digging in as, as strongly as they might do in that region. We always knew that Ukraine hoped to be able to conduct a, a counteroffensive at some point. And obviously that is made significantly easier if you uh, disrupt any efforts to, uh, to create that defensive structure. I think what's also been extremely notable over the last weeks, I think, as, as we've talked about, is the shaping operations of, of the Ukrainian forces and the way in which they have really very effectively disrupted uh, Russian ammunition supplies in the south of the country. Uh, a lot of bridges have now been targeted, uh, which prevents the logistical support for the Russian troops on the front line. So I think... Uh, alongside that question of how well dug in are they is how long can they continue to maintain a defense when they're not receiving those supplies and and i think ukraine has been as i say extremely effective in in doing that and one of the other aspects that we're we're probably going to start seeing in the next few days uh, as well is increasing use of air power from the ukrainians uh, one of the things that was notable on ukrainian reports yesterday was the attacks that have been made against uh, anti-aircraft defences uh, from the Russians. And there were some really interesting videos that came out uh, this morning of those Ukrainian uh, use of anti-radiation, anti-radar missiles. Um, and it appears that they have solid stocks of those missiles. And if they can degrade that, that um, anti-aircraft defence, then it is going to enable them to, to conduct far more successful operations as well. Tom, are the Ukrainian forces uh, emboldened by the fact that the, the supply chain for uh, some of the Western supplied weapons uh, has, uh, say, share why they stabilized? It seems to be more consistent right now. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. And I think the 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 question about the stability of those supply chains is huge for for two reasons. The first, more proximate, I think it's going to be interesting to see the extent to which Western nations are able to continue to produce these weapons. I mean, that we haven't seen weapons being used in this quantity for quite some time now. So I think that's an important aspect of, of this, it's kind of slightly tangential to the, to the war uh, overall. But the second aspect of, of this uh, offensive, there's significant military uh, benefit to taking Kherson, uh, which we can talk about absolutely uh, if you would like, but there's also a huge psychological benefit of um, maintaining an, an offensive posture maintaining that morale. And I think it is crucial that, that Ukraine can demonstrate that it is able to move forward, that it is able to conduct offensive actions to enable the West to continue to justify sending those sorts of um, equipment out to support them. So I think, I think that what we've seen is, again, as we've said, the Ukrainians using Western equipment extraordinarily effectively, really, really integrating it very well into their the way in which they're fighting. Um, but I think certainly this, this offensive is also potentially, if it is successful, and that, again, is, is a big if still at the moment. We shouldn't get ahead of ourselves. But that is going to help to secure um, the maintaining of that, that Western support.
Uh, and obviously encouraging them too. I mean, you need some wins here. A lot of this uh, has been back and forth over the last six months, hasn't it? Uh, yeah. You know, the Russians will take a city, the Ukrainians will will recapture it, uh, then the Russians move in. Kiev is a classic example, I guess, of some of the activity that's going on in and around the cities. Uh, but the South is key, I would think, uh, in this particular uh, situation, especially at this particular time. Yeah, it is. It's hugely important. Uh, there's lots of reasons I would certainly encourage anyone who's listening to to, to have a look at a map of of the region, and it really it shows quite clearly the the significance of Kherson uh, in the south. In in part, it's um, prov- if Kherson can can fall back into Ukrainian hands, then it provides significant defence for cities further down the coast, the Mykolaiv and Odessa, uh, even further. There's a potential that the port can then be used as well, although it is very close to uh, Russian forces in Crimea, which um, perhaps will will uh, not encourage um, ships from other countries to, to enter uh, the port there. But it also provides a platform to uh, potentially attack Crimea, um, which would significantly degrade uh, Russian military operations. Uh, it allows Ukraine to potentially move troops from the south uh, into the east of the country and start offensive uh, in other regions. Um, and it also creates a much shorter front line for, for, for Ukraine as well. The challenge again, of course, here though, is if they do manage to, to retake significant land, which I think we can also, we, we, we hope occurs, um, are they going to then be able to, to hold it over the winter, we we expect that in the coming months, probably as we move into October, November, that the the pace of operations will fall, uh, generally because of of the weather. Uh, and over the winter, we wouldn't expect huge changes in the the kind of the environment of the conflict, if you like. So the question. So, then, so to that point, I, I, yeah. yeah, that's. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, <laughs> You know, we've seen that happen, of course, with, with wars that have gone on for, mm-hmm. well, world wars, of course, in longer periods of time. Uh, weather certainly has an impact on this. Is is this uh, a rush to try to gain some ground and, and gain positions uh, it, before the, the, the foul weather really hits and slows everything down? I, I think it is. Uh, I, perhaps a, a rush is is perhaps not quite the right, right word in this context. I think, I think Ukraine has um, timed this uh, assault very, very well, I mean, we've known for a little while that it was likely to be coming. We've known roughly the sort of area that it was going to be coming, but they've they've done a good job in, in hiding exactly when that assault would come. But I think we're not quite in last chance saloon before the weather closes in, but we're not a million miles away from that. And then uh, uh, again, the, the question is over the winter, who can come back stronger? Um, once those those lines become a little bit more solidified, um, what happens over the course of the winter? What political decisions are made in Russia and political decisions in, in the West and in our own parliaments in Canada, United States and, and the UK and others uh, to continue to provide that support? So it is, I completely agree with you, it's hugely important that Ukraine can demonstrate that it is able uh, to maintain offensive operations and do so successfully. Let's talk about the, uh, I've got a couple of minutes left here. I want to talk about mm. what's happening with the nuclear situation, the nuclear yeah. power plant. Again, getting mixed uh, stories out of here. Uh, the, the, the Russians are uh, indicating that the Ukrainians have actually attacked with missiles. Uh, I know over the weekend uh, there was another call from the Biden administration and others for the Russians to vacate the, the nuclear plant. I don't see that happening anytime soon, do you? No, absolutely not. And there's some really very, very troubling images coming from uh, uh, the, the the nuclear power plant of Russian equipment that is in very close proximities within the, the, the plant and, and the sort of equipment that one might otherwise call legitimate military targets, which, of course, um, 
trying to to strike those targets when they're in the nuclear power plant is very difficult. One thing I would say is that I think we need to be um, uh, quite clear that that the the construction of these nuclear power plants is such that um, they are able to withstand a significant amount of punishment. This isn't a very old nuclear power plant as as they go. My understanding is it's mid nineteen eighties, and um, on that sense, in that sense, uh, the, the likelihood of a, a stray shell causing a massive nuclear disaster is is limited. Uh, that said, it is hugely significant again um, that we can move the fighting away from there. That the risk of that. Um, radiation leak is is um, a terrible prospect. And again, my understanding is that uh, iodine tablets have been provided to local populations, which um, is perhaps in in recognition that there is potential for a radiation leak. Uh, and there's also an IAEA um, team that I understand has just arrived in, in Kiev and is making its way towards the power station as well, who hopefully will be able to provide a little more stability there. Uh, and this is an opportunity again, I think, for for Russia, hopefully, um, to, to try and demonstrate some genuine goodwill. Uh, like you, I'm not wildly confident that that's the case, but it is uh, it is an opportunity. And if the IAEA team get in there, then hopefully that will see a very significant change in what fighting can occur uh, in or around that location. Well, and the other element to this, too, I mean, if they are successful, we'll, we'll get a clearer picture, I would think, because we're getting mixed signals right now mm -hmm. uh, from both sides. And as you've mentioned, even for the Ukraine side, uh, they're, uh, they're less than forthcoming, I guess, with some of the information about yeah. casualties and exactly what they're doing. And I see the point in that as well. But, uh, you know, the idea of the, the reporters that are over there uh, trying to gain some of this information is becoming increasingly difficult for them. Oh, for, for sure. And, and when we see lots of videos that are, that are sent out, it's it's very easy to draw conclusions um, from videos or pieces of information that are actually really very specific and very context dependent. Um, so it's it's one of those situations, again, where it's it's tempting. I know I'm, I'm certainly tempted to keep up with with this on a minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day basis. But but really, it's going to be days, uh, if not weeks um, or months before we get a real picture of what's happened, how the situation has changed. And again, we need to understand that you know, Kherson was the, the major Ukrainian city that, that fell into Russian hands. Um, but there's a long way to go, even if that is, is recaptured uh, for Ukraine. And Zelensky uh, has been very, very sure in his position about the, the reality of pushing the Russian forces back out of Ukraine again. And um, this really is the first phase of an offensive in one area. Uh, and it may take, uh, well, it is likely to take a significant more amount of time um, to, to, to completely complete that mission. A very fluid situation. Always great to get your perspective on this, Thomas. Thank you so much for this. Really appreciate the no, time. Great to speak to you again. Thank you. Take care. Thanks. Thomas Hughes, postdoctoral fellow at the Canadian Defense and Security Network with the latest on what's happening in the war in Ukraine. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.